Montero, um, uh, who is a big thinker about international affairs, so um, about security in particular. But, um, uh, yeah, 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 thank you, thank you. But definite um, uh, IR theory, classical thought, philosophy uh, coming together, um, uh, super smart. So. Take it away in Munich. Thank you very much for the introduction. Usually only my doctor calls me a, a big thinker. <laughs> so I'm very pleased to have others calling me a big thinker. Um, so uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Eugene. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, this is the first time I'm going to talk about this project. So everything is very much in flux. It was a first draft. Uh, I hope this will eventually become a book. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with the project, whether I want to do a sort of theoretical piece and that would be you know 100 pages and put it out in one year or two or whether I want to spend the next uh, 10 years of my life grappling with this and looking into every nook and cranny the, the, the idea can lead me to. I haven't figured that out so maybe your comments can also help me with that. As you probably noticed if you read the paper there are no empirics in the paper. There's no history, there are no case studies. That is by design in the sense that I want to focus on how the theory works and I felt that if I would add one of the sort of obvious case studies to test or illustrate the theory, say the war in Afghanistan, we would spend the two hours talking about the war in Afghanistan and, and, and I wouldn't get as much traction as I want to get with the theory. So I'm just going to talk about the theory. Um, the picture I have here, since there's a lot of fellow realists in the room, uh, and I say really in a sort of a broad tent way as a sort of an inclination to look at politics in a certain way. Uh, I brought as a cover image uh, my favorite painting, which is a painting you can find in the basement of the National Gallery in London called The Ambassadors by Hans Holbein. And let me talk a little bit about the painting. If you want to hear a longer version, you can go to the Cannes Academy video online. There's like a half an hour lecture on this. This is a painting. Hans Holbein was trying to become the painter to Henry VIII. And he became, in the, in the following year. So the painting does two things. One, it depicts these folks. It was, uh, uh, these two folks are French ambassadors living in England. You could have more than one ambassador in the same, from the same country living in the same country. Um, this fellow here, Jean de Nainteville, is a wealthy uh, merchant. Uh, the fellow on the right, uh, Jean de Selve, is a bishop. Uh, so you have here wealth, you have uh, ideology, or uh, the role of ideas, if you will. <laughs> you have um, the material world, you have the world of religion and ideology. Everything looks very good and very harmonious. And then down here you have this thing that looks like a piece of driftwood, which is an anamorphic skull. What I mean is that if I go here and look at it, it's a perfectly painted skull. So it does two things. One is it advertises a whole wine as a really good painter, because he can pull this off, right? Now, the other thing is I think it's a very interesting painting in that despite the harmony and wealth and, and peacefulness of the scene, death is always there. So it's a memento mori, the way the painters would introduce these aspects of death into their painters, into their paintings. But sort of I see it here as the possibility of violence is always there. So as a realist, I'm prone to these things, right? You invite me for a wedding, I go there, people are dancing, and I tend to think of how many layers are between us and war so that people feel so relaxed and can dance with such abandon. So I'm kind of a nerd in that regard, right? And so I'm trying to figure out, instead of what the causes of violence are, I'm trying to figure out in this project, why is it that we're not always at war with each other? Now, obviously, many uh, people much brighter than me have thought about this before. 
and I'm just going to give you a, my, my sort of abstract theoretical version of how I think that we can create peace. So I'm trying to, instead of asking what the causes of war are, I'm going to try to ask, why is it we're not always fighting each other? Right? I'm going to turn it around. And I'm not going to focus, this is not a project that's focused on international war or civil war or terrorism or counterinsurgency. It basically tries to broadly make sense of all forms of political violence. And I'm trying to distill if there's any essential feature of how we can use violence in pursuit of political goals. So those are the two key concepts at play here, violence and political goals. When does it make sense to pursue, and we can talk about ethics in the second half and in the Q&A, but when is it rational, when is it strategic to use violence in pursuit of political goals? When is it perhaps moral or ethical to do that? And when is it not, and so we experience peace? So that's the basic question I'm going to ask. So as I said, when, first question I ask is, when does violence lead to political goals? Another way of asking the same question is, when is victory in conflict possible? So when is it that I can use violence in pursuit of my political goal and expect that the use of violence will eventually lead to my political goal and I will, this is the key part, no longer have to use violence? So let me uh, bring in an example. We went into Afghanistan, into th we, I'm Portuguese. You went into Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, <laughs> I did not go. I did not want to go. It's very dusty over there, I'm told. So um, the United States went to, into Afghanistan with a political goal, which was, we can debate this until we're all blue in the face, but roughly to prevent uh, terrorist groups that are contrary to US interests and US security from setting up shop in Afghanistan from which they can then launch attacks on the US. That's the political goal. And the question I'm asking is, is it possible that use, by the use of violence, I can reach that political goal? It may be possible, or I'm going to argue, it may not be possible. And if it's not possible, the other world we're in, is a world in which you have to continue to use violence. Right? So the, the question I'm asking is, when can you stop using violence? Right? I'm trying to explore the possibility that in some circumstances, it's possible that violence does not lead to political goals. Violence requires, you, you need the continued use of violence to pursue your political goal. Does the difference make sense to you? Am I being clear on that? So the idea, the US military, every time I talk to a general, they have this mantra which is sustainable, peaceful outcomes. What they want to reach in Afghanistan and Iraq is a sustainable, peaceful outcome. There is a, a political order that while it may not be Switzerland, it may nevertheless be sustainable, compatible with our political ends, and peaceful so that we can get out, right? The US Army wants to get out from Afghanistan, get out from Iraq. And I'm asking, are there conditions under which this is impossible? Put it differently. When you discuss Afghanistan and Iraq, both in the news and in the scholarship, the discussions are exclusively about tactics and strategy. And the idea is, if you get it right, you're going to achieve victory. If you do it right, 
you're going to achieve a sustainable political outcome. There's going to be a point at which the thing will sustain itself and you can go home. And I'm asking, is this always possible? So what are the conditions under which violence leads to political goals? When is victory possible? And victory, I'm defining it as a sustainable, peaceful outcome compatible with the victor's political goals. So victory is incompatible with continuing to use violence. I'm defining it that way, right? So you call it victory when you can put your gun in your bag and go back home and the thing doesn't fall apart. If you're still using violence, it's not victory, okay? The argument I'm gonna make is that there are social political conditions, oops, social political conditions of possibility for victory. These conditions of possibility is a Kantian term. If you've read your Kant, he's always talking about conditions of possibility. So there are, you can call it preconditions. There are preconditions for victory to be possible. In some types of socio-political structures, in some types of societies, and when you face some types of threats, victory is a meaningful concept. And I'm gonna argue that in other types of societies and other types of political threats, Victory is not a meaningful concept. The odds of victory, this, is a, this may not make sense to you because this is a summary of the argument and then I'm gonna spend the next 45 minutes or 40 explaining, right? The odds of, of violence leading to victory, leading political goals, are shaped by two things. One, the size of the minimum group needed to threaten you. So put it this way, if I need 10 million people to threaten the United States, that's one scenario. If 10 people are enough to threaten the United States, that's a very different scenario. And I'm gonna say, the smaller the size of the minimum group needed to threaten me, the harder victory is. The harder peace is to sustain. Because you need a smaller group of people to destabilize the situation. Okay? First plank of the argument. The higher the size of the minimum group, the more peace is possible. Second, how integrated is the enemy? The more integrated the enemy, the more peace is possible. And here's the intuition. If you're fighting World War II, God forbid, if you're fighting World War II against the Nazis, you need to kill an awful lot of Nazis and other Germans before you win. You need to break an awful lot of stuff. But when you get to May 1945, and they finally, finally decide it's time to give up, and General Yodel signs the instrument, signs the, the peace deal, you don't need to worry that Company C of Regiment 636 of the German army will come to bite you. They all set down their weapons. So the level of integration of the enemy, a highly integrated enemy, while it may make it harder for you to beat them because they're very good at fighting, they have a very strong institutional machine for fighting, it makes it easier when you reach the point at which they say we're going to concede defeat it makes it easier for peace to be sustained afterwards you don't need to worry that this particular group will come after you that particular group will come after you right so two planks one the size of the minimum group needed to threaten me two the integration level of the adversary right and what i'm arguing is that when the size of the minimum group needed to threaten me is small and the adversary is not particularly well integrated, we're in a socio-political setting where you can't reach peace. Victory is not a meaningful goal. 
That is, if the threat you're trying to use violence to deter or to destroy emanates from a very small group, and if the other side as a state is not well organized, is not well integrated, you're going to have a very hard time ending violence, and you're going to end up in what the Israelis call, some might find it problematic from the ethical standpoint, mowing the grass operations. Right? Mowing the grass operations means if you're the new leader of, of Hamas, your life expectancy is about three months because the Israelis are going to bomb the hell out of your compound. Right? And then the next leader comes in and they bomb the compound again. The purpose of these Israeli operations is not to reach peace. They're not thinking that one day they will have to stop this. The purpose is to manage the conflict by continuing to use violence to make sure their political goals, the security of Israeli citizens, are achieved. Do you have a protocol about interruptions? No? If there's clarification questions, so feel free to ask. I'm, I'm fine with, since this is not a job talk, I'm fine being interrupted. I see. <laughs> I'm being very clear. <laughs> So that's what I'm trying to argue. For some conflicts, victory and therefore peace are not possible outcomes. And so the problem, and this is the contribution if there's one, is that you're looking at the wrong place by trying to fix the tactics and the strategy. What I'm trying to say is that even if you get the, you can try whichever tactics you want and whichever strategy you want, you will have to continue to use violence. So that's the argument, is that it's not a tactical problem. There's an enormous debate, say, in the counterinsurgency domain between the coercive approach, are you going to kill insurgents, or the comprehensive hearts and minds approach, are you going to focus on winning the hearts and minds of the population? I'm trying to say this is a red herring, that it doesn't matter what you're going to try to do, you'll not reach a sustainable, peaceful outcome. You will have to continue to use violence. So what's the context for this? We've spent the last... A uh, few millennia trying to look at the causes of war. In the last 25 years, this is going to look like the new Cosmos series, right? There's the whole few millennia. But then if you zoom into the last 25 years, the study of the causes of war starts from a puzzle, which is war is costly, right? You break stuff, you kill people. So why does peaceful bargaining break down? And there's a number of arguments out there made mostly by rational choice folks. Imperfect information, commitment problems. I don't know if you're familiar with the literature, but so the puzzle is, Given that war is costly, why do you have wars? Why can't people create a deal that avoids war? The interesting thing is, very recently, in the last, I would say, five years, that literature has evolved to pointing out how peace can be costly. Either because peace is economically inefficient, you can't grow as fast as you would in peace because you don't have resources to grow. Say, Japan in the 1930s, they don't have oil, so the peace is very inefficient for them. Peace can also be inefficient because you have to spend lots of money in weapons to deter an adversary. So you might be inclined to spend a lot of money now to destroy the adversary so you don't have to continue to spend money in weapons year after year. When you think of it this way, if you eliminate the, the central puzzle that war is more costly than peace and therefore something that needs to be explained, you end up with the opposite puzzle, which is why aren't we always at war if peace is more costly? Right? So I'm trying to explain peace. I'm trying to invert the question and explain peace. Peace is, for me, the puzzle to be explained. 
The other part of the theoretical context, one is on the causes of war, is how to win wars. And here we have scholarship that tells you, you know, I could go on and on just you know, in, in teaching an entire course on this stuff. There's a lot of it, as you can imagine. How do you win wars? Well, you can win through decisive victories. You can win through coercion, which means getting the adversary to give up before you have to kill every soldier. So in, impressing on them that, that, that it's time to give up. Uh, you also have a debate on what causes peace in these sort of small wars. I use this term wars among the people. It's a term I borrow from General, British General uh, Robert Smith, who was in charge of uh, NATO forces in, in Kosovo, wrote this wonderful book called Wars Among the People. It's called The Utility of Force in Wars Among the People. Uh, and he calls war, wars among the people are these sort of contemporary wars that, by the way, have existed since forever, but that are very common now, in which it's not a front line with two armed organizations. It's insurgency or terrorism or, um, or um, civil war. There's no form. There's no conventional front line. And here the debate is, as I mentioned before, between two schools, the military or coercive approach, focus on killing the bad guys, and the hearts and minds approach, which thinks of these wars as three players, the population being the third, and you're going to try to get the population to side with you rather than side with the insurgents, side with the other side. So this is the theories we have on this stuff. The historical context, why am, I, why, not, why am I asking this question at this point in history? Because major wars are increasingly rare for a number of reasons we have there. But these wars among the people are increasingly common. So we have a lot of this in the news. We have a lot of this in the scholarship, right? It's, it's a puzzle for me. Most of the IR scholarship is called international relations. But these days, looks at the international relations of villages, right? What happens when you bomb a village? Because conflict is very micro in, in, in terms of where it happens. It's not sort of big wars among states are rare these days. Uh, and I hope it stays that way. I don't know if it will. We'll see through the summer. Um, and the US, particularly, is always at war in these, in these types of conflicts. So when you look at US history, the period since the end of the Cold War, I wrote a book on this before, uh, you know, it's 10% of US history and about 25, 27% of US time at war. So we're always at war these days. At the same time, we're always at war in this sort of disjuncted way in which we're fine, we're here, there's no war, there's no bombers overhead because war is somewhere else and it's fought by a small uh, professional force. So to answer the question and to build the argument that I've prefigured, I'm going to go back to a fellow named Karl von Clausewitz, which wrote this book called On War, from Krieg, uh, after having been a general in the Prussian, an officer in the Prussian army in the wars against Napoleon. Uh, he is, who, who has read Clausewitz here? Can I get a sense of who has read? Okay, so it's pretty widespread. So he is seen as sort of the godfather of uh, theories of war. He's sort of a perennial figure. He's for theories of war like Machiavelli is for politics more broadly. And he has a framework of how you relate violence to political goals and how you win wars, right? How we can use violence to, use polit to achieve political goals. Uh, the reason I'm engaging him is because he is a topic of great contention today in not so much in the scholarship, but if you look at, for example, the strategic thinking that comes out of the US military academies and the British military academies, there's two movements going on. One is we need to discard Clausewitz, because you know, old Karl von Clausewitz talks about big wars. We don't fight those wars anymore. So we need a new framework to understand how violence relates to politics that's not his. So we're going to discard it. 
The other view is we need to update him and change some things in the theory because his theory is old-fashioned and needs to be rescued somehow to be useful for these wars. My view on this is that he has the only, to my knowledge, the only workable framework connecting violence to politics. So if you're upset because in his framework you can't win the wars you're fighting, the problem is not with the framework. The problem is with the war. So the, the metaphor I tried to come up with in the paper is I'm, I would like to drop an apple from the tree and have it go to outer space. And because I want that, I'm going to take Newtonian physics of gravity and tweak with the theory until I figure out how to do that. Well, it's not going to happen. The apple is still going to fall to Earth because, you know, the problem is not with the theories, what I'm trying to achieve. And I think in, along similar lines about the political goals we're trying to achieve with violence in the wars I mentioned just a slide ago. That is, we're trying to change Clausewitz's theory so that we can see a light at the end of the tunnel and figure out how to win the war. And I'm trying to say, wait a minute, there's another possibility, which is there is no light at the end of the tunnel. You can't win these wars regardless of how you play the tactics and the strategy. So I'm countering attempts to discard or update Clausewitz. I'm just going to focus on a few. So I'm going to use four aspects of his theory to build my stuff. I'm not going to treat you know, another 5,500 aspects of his theory. It's a very long, complicated book. So I'm just going to focus on four aspects, which I'm going to enunciate now. First, we need to understand that war is the continuation of politics with the addition of other means. Sometimes people translate it as by other means. That's not what he says. So the politics doesn't stop when the violence starts, right? The violence is being used to condition the politics. So you just assume that there's implicitly or explicitly a negotiation process between the two sides as the violence is depleting resources. So violence is a way of achieving political goals. There's all sorts of violence in the world. I don't care about it if it's not, for this theory, if it's not for a political goal. So the first thing is war is a continuation of politics with other means. The second thing is war has three levels. The political level, you need to figure out what's your political goal. What is it you want to achieve? The strategic level, two things you need to figure out. What's the military goal? And what's your strategy for how to get there? Why do you need to define a military goal? Some wars, very rarely, the political goal is the same as the military goal. For example, when the Nazis go into the Eastern Front, into the Soviet Union, it's what they call a Vernichtungskrieg, a war of annihilation. Their purpose is to exterminate Slavs, enslave and exterminate Slavs. The military goal is the political goal. If your goal is to kill everybody, if your political goal is to kill everybody in the enemy population, then your military goal is your political goal. You can use violence directly in pursuit of that goal. If you want to build democracy in Afghanistan, you can't kill your way into it, right? The killing and the, the violence is happening to condition the positions of other players so they come to the table in a negotiated process and you can build a political outcome. But you can't directly use the violence for that. So you need to figure out what's the military goal. Do I need to conquer a province? Do I need to kill half the population? What is it I need to do militarily with guns in terms of kinetic operations, killing people, breaking stuff, so that I can achieve my political goal? So first purpose of strategy, define what the goal is. Second purpose of strategy, create the forces and place the forces in the terrain so I can do that. And finally, the third level of war, 
tactics, and tactics is the uses of force in battle. It's the smallest level. So that's the second concept I need, and I'm going to build on this in the next few slides. The third concept I need is the principle of polarity, which is a very 19th century sort of uh, magnetic, electromagnetic theory view or concept to talk about how incompatible are the two things we want. So I'm fighting a war with you. How, what's the level of incompatibility between our two goals? Is what I want compatible, somewhat compatible with, with what you want? In the War of Annihilation in Eastern Europe, World War II, it's not. Slavs want to live. Nazis want to kill all Slavs. In the War of the Spanish Succession, most of the population don't care much who becomes the next Spanish king, whether it's a Bourbon or a Habsburg. So some goals are intrinsically more opposite. Some goals are somewhat more compatible. Right? For example, today, the society we want to create in Afghanistan is very different from the society Taliban leaders want to see in Afghanistan. Right? The, the more different these societies are, the more they'll be willing to die Rather than, you remember from, the, you don't remember the 50s, neither do I. Uh, praise the Lord. But uh, uh, it, you, there used to be a, a, a sentence, uh, better dead than red, right? So you'd rather die than become a communist or have the U.S. overrun by communists, right? So that's the question. If your political goals are very antithetical, you're going to be willing to pay a high cost in terms of life and limb and treasury. If your goals are less antithetical, then you're going to fold faster. And the fourth concept is the culminating point of victory. And I understand I'm throwing concepts at you at the high speed. Uh, try to hang on. This is the last one. Uh, culminating point of victory means the point at which you've destroyed enough stuff on the adversary's side that they no longer have the will to fight. So you've killed enough people, conquered enough territory, broken enough things that they say, OK, I'm going to sign a peace deal. This is enough. I lose. I concede. And with these four concepts, I'm going to try to create a theory of victory a la Clausewitz. So this is his theory, not mine. So this would be sort of an undergraduate lecture on what Clausewitz means. If I'm trying to summarize it, I would say this. How do you achieve victory in war? That is, translating, how do you achieve political goals through violence? Right? It can be terrorism. It can be nuclear war. I'm not prefiguring what level of violence it is. First, you translate your political goal into a military goal. Then, if your political goal, of course, is the destruction of the adversary, this is the same as the military goal. If your political goal is different from the destruction of the adversary, if it's a constructive political goal, as it mostly is these days, we're not in the business of killing people for the sake of killing people, um, then you need to figure out a military goal that will lead the adversary to at least acquiesce with what you want. That is, they're going to be alive, but they have to be able to live with the political situation you want to create, right? You're not going to kill them. Therefore, they have to acquiesce at least, support or at least acquiesce with what you want to create. Then you formulate a strategy that leads you to achieve the military goal you created, and you formulate the tactical solutions that lead to strategic success, that lead to the political goal. So successful tactical outcomes produced by good tactics, lead to successful strategic outcomes, the result of good strategy, leads you to achieve the political goal. All of the action in the discussion today is on these two levels. It's the strategy and the tactics. Should we do hearts and minds? Should we focus on killing the bad guys? Should we have patrols out of the uh, armored vehicles? Should we have patrols inside the armored vehicles? So tactics 
and strategy. I'm trying to say the key connection is on how these two levels relate to the political goal of the war. And there are conditions under which you will not be able to achieve a political outcome through the use of violence. So I'm going to build up to that. So up to here, it was just closets. And now I'm going to introduce my little uh, list of three mechanisms for victory. So how can you achieve this situation in which the adversary gives up? And I'd say three ways. One is destruction. You basically kill the adversary and kill everybody in their support base of recruitment, right? Their population if it's a state. So if you destroy, we tried to do that with Japan in World War II, right? You kill vast numbers of civilians, recruitment base. You kill vast numbers of uniformed personnel, and you hope that eventually they will surrender. Okay, so that's a destruction strategy. A second strategy is a transformation strategy. We hope that when we went into Iraq, they would all come out, the Democrat small d inside them would come out, and they would immediately turn Iraq into Switzerland, a boring but very civilized country. Exceedingly boring. I fall asleep in the airplane. If it overflies, I know it's in Swiss airspace because I fall asleep. But very civilized, right? If you've never seen, if, have you ever seen The Third Man by Carol Reed, a movie that has the famous cuckoo clock speech by, by uh, Orson Welles? You know what? The, Italian, the, the Italians have had 500 years of murder, political dissent, civil war. They created Michelangelo and you know, Da Vinci. The Swiss have had 500 years of social peace. What did they come up with? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> so it may not be the most exciting country, but it's very peaceful. So transformation, the idea that you get the adversary to actually be reshaped in his political interests, his and her political interests, so they now support your goals, right? They used to think against you, but now they genuinely are in favor. And the third version, the third mechanism is control. That is, the adversary is neither dead nor transformed, but is controlled into acquiescing your goals, right? Not necessarily supporting. They didn't become uh, you know, the, the greatest um, admirers of the United States, but they're willing to live with it, right? And so that's the third mechanism. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. How do you achieve victory through destruction? You probably all read. The Cities Peloponnesian War, History of the Peloponnesian War, where the Million Dialogue, they talk to the millions, the millions appeal to some concept of morality. The Athenians say, you know, morality doesn't exist between people of different power. The millions don't surrender. When the Athenians finally get their siege to work, they kill all the men, sell all the women and children to slaves. Done. That's destruction. Raise the city. Same way that the Romans dealt, dealt with Carthage, right? You raise the city after the Third War, it's done. There's no more adversary. So that's how victory through destruction works. And I would say this is unfeasible in most contemporary wars among the people for two reasons. One is the political goal of the war is the building of a society. You can't build a society if you kill the people. So if the political goal of the war is building a society that works in a certain way, you can't kill everybody. So destruction is sort of out of the question. Second reason is moral. Most Western states today, and many non-Western states, don't see themselves in the business of wholesale slaughter. It's sort of not what states do anymore. It used to be for a long time, but not anymore. So this destruction has its problems. Um, transformation, this is the only quotation I have because I love this quotation. I, I have to read it to you. Transformation is the idea of getting the adversary to subscribe to your goals. And here I have a quotation from Tacitus. He wrote a biography of his, uh, I believe, father-in-law or uncle, father-in-law, 
you know, Julius Agricola, who was a governor of Britain in the first century. And so Tacitus writes, the following winter passed without disturbance and was employed in salutary measures for to accustom to rest and repose through the charms of luxury, a population scattered and barbarous and therefore inclined to war, Agricola gave private encouragement and public aid to the building of temples, courts of justice, and dwelling houses, praising the energetic and reproving the indolent. Thus, an honorable rivalry took the place of compulsion. That is, you no longer needed to control the adversary, right? Compulsion was no longer necessary. He likewise provided a liberal education for the sons of the chiefs, and showed such a preference for the natural powers of the Britons, Sebastian in the back will enjoy this part, over the industry of the Gauls, the French, that they who lately disdained the tongue of Rome now coveted its eloquence, so they loved Roman. Step by step, they were led to things which disposed to vice, the lounge, the bath, the elegant banquet, and this magnificent sentence. All this in their ignorance they called civilization, when it was but a part of their servitude. Right? So he subdued the, the peoples of Britain by getting them accustomed to this sort of Roman life such that they now love it. Right? So this is transformation. Right? You, they no longer are adversaries. They no longer oppose your political position. And I'm just going to say here that in, in contemporary wars among the people, it seems to me the level of polarity, the level of antipathy, the level of opposition between the goals of the two sides is so great that this is hard to achieve. So this is an ambitious outcome. And you will see in a couple of minutes, you remember I had two planks to my theory. The first plank was the minimum size of the group needed to threaten the state. If this group is very large, then you don't need to transform the whole of society. Because in order to rebel against me, you actually need to get a lot of recruits right, to come against me. And so if I transform just enough of society that you don't have access to that pool, to such a large pool, I'm fine. But if you can threaten me with 100 folks, then I really have to transform the whole of society except for like 99. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. So the lowest the size of the group needed to threaten me, the highest the demand on put on transformation. So the deepest, the more thorough this transformation needs to be. And the final one is control. And control is achieved, is victory, achieved through the application of violence until the adversary, both the ones fighting and the population base from which they recruit, no longer has the will to fight. So the key distinction between this and transformation is they remain opposed to our goals, but they will acquiesce to our goals because they think that using violence has a negative expected utility, right? To use the economist's term. So they think that if they fight us, they're going to be worse off than if they don't fight us, right? The expected outcome of fighting is worse. So that's how you control a society. How does hearts and minds work? An example, it's as close to an example as I have it. Hearts and minds actually uses all three. So I have three ideal types, destruction, transformation, control. In practice, states use all of them together. For example, our counterinsurgency approach in Iraq is, in Afghanistan, also in Iraq, is you destroy the insurgents, you try to transform the population by you know, giving them greenhouses and schooling and all sorts of good things, and you try to control whatever remaining extremists are left. Right? So you try to kill the majority of them, transform the overwhelming majority of the population, and make sure you deter the remaining extremists by making them think they will get killed if they attack us. 
These three mechanisms are related. Very dense slide for which I apologize. I'm almost done. Five minutes more, so take a deep breath. We're almost there. Uh, I'm going to try to relate the three. I'm going to try to show you conditions under which each of these mechanisms is easier, more easily leads to victory, or less easily leads to victory. The farther the political goal of the war is from the destruction of the adversary, the lower the feasibility of the destruction mechanism. So if your political goal is not to kill everybody, destruction is not going to work as a tool for victory. <coughs> Likewise, the more the adversary is interspersed with civilians, the less effective the destruction mechanism, also for moral reasons. We're not willing to you know, destroy societies, kill innocent civilians, etc., etc. The second point, the higher the polarity between the political goals of the two sides, that is, the, the less they agree on anything, the two sides in the fighting, the lower the effectiveness of transformation, the harder transformation will be. So therefore, the farther the political goal of the war is from destruction of the adversary, the more the adversary coexists among the people, so the first two clauses, and the higher the polarity between the two sides, the more victory will have to rely to, on control. So the more wars have these features, the more winning requires controlling the population. You can't just kill them, and it's going to be very hard to transform them. So the burden of victory is going to be placed on controlling the population. Turning a population that opposes you into an acquiescent population that agrees, if it doesn't support, agrees to your goals. But control, I would argue, has very important limits. The greater the polarity of the conflict, the higher the odds that some in society will remain willing to use violence. Right? So the more those folks oppose what you want, the more their ideal society, their ideal political system is different from your ideal political system, the more likely it is that at least some will be willing to continue to fight. Okay? In these conditions, control will require the continued application of violence. So as long as there's folks willing to fight, you have to continue to fight them. And therefore, violence does not lead to a sustainable political outcome, sustainable, peaceful outcome compatible with your goals. So I'm trying to change the mindset from the goal of what we're trying to do is to win the war, the idea that one day Afghanistan is going to be self-sustained in peace and we're going to leave. And I'm, going to, I'm trying to say that if you think violence is the best way to achieve this goal, you're going to be stuck perpetrating violent acts forever, as far as we can see. So victory is not an achievable outcome. And this is because the size of the minimum group necessary to threaten the state in these wars is small. So you don't need, think of it this way. What we're fighting for in Afghanistan is not the Afghan army, which is actually on our side. We're training them when they don't turn against us. But we're not fighting a, a large force. The threat does not, is not made of hundreds of thousands of people in uniforms. The threat is 150 guys who set up shop in some remote part of the country and then hatch out a, a, a plan to perpetrate terrorist attacks against the U.S. I'm not, saying this is, I'm not saying this is a conflict in which we should be involved or not. I'm, just, I'm agnostic on that. I'm just evaluating the policy goals as stated by the policymakers. So if this group is very small, the threshold for continued violence is lower. 
you're going to have, you're going to be concerned about small groups turning against you. You're going to have to control those small groups through violence. Put it this way, in 45 again, when Yodel signs the, the, the instrument of peace with the Western Allies and, and with the Soviet Union, we are no longer worried that the particular regiment or brigade or division or company or battalion will continue to fight World War II. Does that make sense? The threat we were trying to deal with in World War II is a threat that's a large-scale military that requires a state machine. When the guy at the top signs the peace deal, it's over. They all put down, I mean, it may take a couple of weeks to get the memo, but you get the point, right? They eventually uh, put down their forces. Does that make sense? So some wars, there's, you know, the American Civil War, there's questions about, you know, when did they hear about the treaty? Why are they still fighting? That sort of thing. The, the American War of Independence, for example, is a particularly good example. War of 1812, too. So the first condition for success, the first condition that determines whether control is feasible, whether control without violence is possible, is the size of the group. And the second one is the level of integration of the adversary. Poorly integrated adversaries present two problems for reaching victory. The first problem is while you're fighting. If your adversary is not an integrated organization, you're basically fighting in a whack-a-mole strategic posture. How do conventional wars work? Tactical outcomes get aggregated into strategical outcomes, get aggregated into political outcomes. That is, if you are the lieutenant in charge of Company C in a particular battle, you're going to radio up to, through the chain of command that things are going poorly. And eventually, the general in charge of the Western Front or whatever it is, it's going to get the memo on how the day is going. And they're going to tell the political leadership, we can ask for more concessions at the negotiation table, or we have to give up more at the negotiation table. If the force is not integrated, Look at Syria. I can't even tell who's fighting. To, honestly, I cannot tell who's fighting. I mean, I try to keep track of all the names and how they're allied, but it gets very complicated very fast. If you're not fighting an integrated force, harder to achieve the culminating point of victory. But I would say equally better, perhaps worse, is the second problem it creates, which is after war, you don't have a partner on the defeated side able to control its own forces. So. Whereas the German army, when the guy at the top signs the treaty, tells everybody down the chain of command to lay down weapons, this is not how most of the common adversaries we have in wars among the people work. There's splinter groups, there's factions, there's different people with different intensity of preferences. Some may be willing to concede, some may not be willing to concede. So you have a very difficult time controlling the adversary after reaching the culminating point of victory, which is another way to say you never reach the culminating point of victory. There's always someone willing to fight on the other side. And the final way of distilling this is to say, I'm not sure this works. I haven't found a way in which it doesn't work, but I'm not there yet in terms of being persuaded that this slide works. But one of the ways I've been thinking about this is, let's classify threats in two ways. Threats coming from the state and threats coming from society. The World War II was a threat coming from the state. There were a number of states we were fighting, and they mobilized the resources of their populations, right? And they put up a very good fight for six years. It was very hard to defeat them. So these are harder to defeat, but when you defeat them, they're easier to control. Again, you're not worried that Company C in a particular brigade 
of the German army will continue to fight through 1946. They've just given up. So harder to win, because it's a big, powerful, integrated machine, easier to control once you reach a peace deal. Sustainable peace outcome, peaceful outcome is possible if difficult. But if threats emanate from society, that is those little groups, smaller threats, they're easier to defeat. You know, tactical outcomes against these groups are very easy. Every time you have an engagement with them, you can kill a whole bunch of them and have a very good exchange, casualty exchange ratio. The problem is this doesn't aggregate up to anything. It's like playing whack-a-mole. So they may be easier to defeat, but they're very hard to control. And so the ability to reach a peaceful outcome is harder, and you require the continued use of violence, what the Israelis again call mowing the grass operations. Policy implications, because otherwise Mike would never invite me again. I have all of this. Um, the main point I'm trying to make is that your decision to use force, your decision to use violence, should contemplate the possibility that under particular types of conflict, in particular types of conflicts, you're not going to win. The best you can aim at is to be able to deter the threat or to manage the threat by continuing to use violence for as far as the eye can see. Right? That peaceful outcomes are not achievable. So that's a policy implication. And then I have two slides on stuff I haven't done yet, but that I expect to do. One is to figure out what the terms, so I have these two planks, these two independent variables in the social science jargon, which is the size of the minimum group necessary to threaten me and the level of organizational integration. And you know, there's a whole literature on each of these, you know, entire floors of the library. So I'd like to figure out, instead of looking at them as independent variables, I'd like to figure out what causes those particular levels. For example, did the technology of violence change such that today smaller groups can better threaten states? I'm very skeptical on this view, because we had the weapons to perpetrate terrorist attacks have been around for a very long time. Maybe what changed is our, our casualty aversion among our own civilians and the fact that uh, the US federal government cannot sustain a 9-11 every three months, basically. Right? A 9-11 every three months would be very light casualties compared to World War II. Is it politically sustainable? Absolutely not. So something changed here that a small group of people can really challenge a very powerful state machinery. And the other factor that I'd like to look into is what determines the level of organizational integration. Is it, Paul Stanwin has a book on this, uh, Paul Stanwin at Chicago, pre-existing social ties. Is it state capacity, this variable that's thrown around a lot? Is it resor natural resources? Could it be endogenous to the violence? That is, could it be the process of violence itself that leads groups to splinter and become less integrated, right? There's a whole literature on this, on, on splinters and spoilers. Uh, for example, when you look at, it's very interesting, when you look at the very early phases of the conflict in Afghanistan, by which I mean before we start fighting in October 2001, right after 9-11, the CIA starts, is ordered by the president to start to attempt to peel away from the Taliban certain Taliban commanders. This, this process of trying to destabilize the Taliban structure by making offers to this and that commander is then down the road going to have a pernicious effect, which is they are not an integrated organization. And so when one surrenders, the other doesn't. They have different views. So maybe the whole process, the whole tension of fighting leads to the disintegration of, of at least a particular type of adversary. And then I have a slide with uh, sort of uh, non-negligible implications. 
Um, for state-society relations, so if you're going to be using violence forever, um, you're going to be having a part of your society that's always in the business of applying violence. That's what we do now. We have a holy volunteer force uh, that's fighting over there, and we're fine here. Is that sustainable social model? What are the implications of that? Uh, will we witness the re-commoditization of political violence? Um, you know, political violence used to be, the capacity for violence used to be a market commodity until the 17th, 18th century. You'd hire some mercenaries, some pirates, some privateers, and then states realized this gets us into more trouble than it's worth, and they actually monopolized it, but it could be re-commoditized. Maybe that's an implication of this. For legal theory, it creates all sorts of problems. So if you're always at war, there's no longer states of exception. Right? So many countries have in their constitution particular powers for the executive when you're at war. Well, if you're always at war, it's just the new law of the land. So we should think about that. And there's some, uh, Mary Dudziak has a book on this that's very interesting called Wartime, History of an Idea. And finally, for just war theory, and here I've been doing some research, and I was happy to see that it actually dovetails nicely with where the field is going, which is to say, you know, we had this use ad bellum and use in bello, and the latest literature has basically collapsed these ideas and sort of try to eradicate, the f to, to destroy the field of just war theory by saying we ju it's just a part of the ethics of killing more broadly. And so what you need to think of is whether you're morally justified in perpetrating a particular act of violence. Forget about war, in war, before war. Any particular, any given act of violence needs to be justified. And that seems to be the right framework to evaluate a situation in which you continue to use violence, albeit at a low level, but sort of in perpetuity. That's it. Thanks very much. <laughs> Sorry I went a so, little long. No, it's good. Um, so those of you who are standing, I count, you know, two chairs, one chair, whatever. Come on, sit down. We're friendly. Mike is a lovely person. Someone should sit next to him. It's like my quarterly shower. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, and uh, we'll open it up for open it up for questions. So uh, uh, I'm making a list. Tasneen, you can start. Uh, no, no. Thank you so much for this fascinating uh, talk. I was wondering if I could hear you talk a little bit more about the definition of victory, um, in particular defining it as no longer using violence. So I had two questions about that. The first one is, how are you defining violence? Is it the actual use of force? Is it the credible threat of using force at any time? I just want to hear a little bit more about that. And then the second related question is, if we define victory so strictly as no longer using violence at all, is this a meaningful definition of victory? Um, so you know, after war, peace can be imperfect, particularly with these new kinds of wars. So if we're going from, for example, high intensity to low intensity violence, or to sporadic episodes of violence, shouldn't we still count that as victory? And then there's just some use of violence that you'll need in order to maintain order post-victory, but shouldn't we analytically yep. separate the two? How are you thinking about that? Um, those are some of the hardest questions I've, I've been trying to grapple. And if you are uh, unlucky enough to be exposed to another presentation about this a year down the road, it may be very different. So here's what I'm trying to say. Here's what I'm trying to do. The definition as it is is no violence. So it's a sustainable, peaceful outcome means that you do not need to perpetrate violence. Threat of violence is compatible with victory. So control would be 
society is controlled because they understand the cost-benefit calculation leads to not using violence against us. That's because they understand we would use violence. So threat is compatible with peace. Use of violence is not compatible with peace. And your comeback, your second question could be sort of a comeback to this answer, right? Which is, well, how is that a workable definition, right? If you, you know, drive up a few miles to Chicago, there's a lot of violence, right? And we're at peace. So isn't this an exceedingly or arbitrarily low, low definition, low violence definition of, of peace? Um, one way, so I have two ways of dealing with the question. One is to say, look, the uh, canonical just war theory would tell you that one of the preconditions for a war to be just is that you have a reasonable expectation of victory, right? Defined as no longer using violence. Right? If you can't reach a state in which violence is going to end, you're not ethically allowed to start it. Now, this is a sort of an old hat view of the, of the, of the thing. But it, I think it's intuitively how we think of peace. Put it this way. At least it's the delegation of violence to the adversary. Right? So that we don't need to have our forces in Afghanistan or West Germany, whatever it is. They do the work of controlling their society for us, and we don't need to be involved. So maybe that's a more workable view. The second way to deal with the question is one direction the project can go, which I'm a little, uh, it's a little dreadful in the sense that it involves even more floors of the library, is to say, you know, there's all sorts of political violence, like, Gang, there's all sorts of violence, gangs, criminals, right? So we could just have a continuum and victory is, the, is sort of bringing the level down to the level you have in an American city, which is actually not that low, right? So I'm a little iffy on bringing it that way because it opens, you know, I have enough cans of worms open already, so I'd like to focus on the political violence. So it would have to be at least the ability to delegate. Is that a plausible answer? Okay. And they can tell me your name. Great. I'm Ben Dennison, as he said, um, sixth-year PhD student in the department. Um, so I advanced, advanced. Yes. I learned at Chicago. After fourth yes. year, you don't say the year. You say advanced PhD. Advanced PhD student. <laughs> student. That's just because Chicago. We could be at the twenty-five. So thank you very much for your presentation. It it it's a great background. It delves nicely with my dissertation, so I very much like it. Um, so I have a comment and a question. Um, first. Um, I would just be interested in the future to kind of see how this would uh, mesh with the state formation literature. I think it would naturally, when you talk about destruction, transformation, and control, thinking how states go from roving bandits to stationary bandits, I think that would mesh very nicely. Um, and I think that could actually get you lots of interesting takeaways. It gives you more uh, floors of the library, unfortunately. But wow. yeah, um, I think Thanks that, for that. <laughs> I think it also would help if you're thinking about organizational integration, um, kind of how the state, how strong it is, I think that can that, um, fits there nicely. Uh, for the question, um, I think one perhaps missing uh, variable kind of you have in the whole framework is time horizons generally, especially if we're talking about kind of why do these wars among the people become even more problematic because you have a foreign power with a shorter time horizon than the people actually on the territory do. Um, and I think the shorter time horizons could actually make control, uh, the control strategy or control theory of victory even more problematic because now you have to control this population who knows that you're going to leave at some point and they have a longer time horizon than you. 
Um, and I think that might be one reason why control becomes so problematic in these wars among the people versus interstate war, where the time horizons might be similar. And I thought maybe one way you might be able to get at these time horizons, um, kind of linking the two comments I made together, would be if you did a case study of um, kind of the unification of Germany or Italy or the U.S. Civil War, comparing it to Iraq and Afghanistan, I think those would be kind of two interesting ways to kind of look at these time horizons and similar yeah, yeah, dynamics. Yeah. Those are excellent comments. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know why I'm doing this. One of my pet peeves is people judge questions and say, that was an excellent question, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to exempt myself from my own rule for once. Um, because then the next guy will be like, gee, you didn't think my question was excellent. Right? <laughs> What's wrong with my question? Um, you're absolutely right on how this relates to state formation. I'm going to give the same answer, which is about the cans of worms. Right? I'm, but I think I may have to say something. And when I look at the state formation literature and this sort of how the state acquires the monopoly of violence, there's actually very interesting, if you're, you're interested in that, I recommend you read, um, there's, a, there's a book coming out by Jonathan Obert, O-B-E-R-T, he's at Amherst College, that's about the creation of the monopoly of violence in the United States. He has the coolest data set I've ever seen, which is a data set of gunfighters in the American West. And what he shows is that basically the state, the federal government, goes around hiring the most capable gunfighters as sheriffs, and that's how you create the monopoly of violence, because people are controlled, right? They don't want to be killed by them. So I think the theory fits very nicely with this. When I was reading his book, I thought it fits very nicely with this. It's just I haven't found, how do I put this? That would push me in the direction of the 10-year book, right, in which there's a, a chapter on how, how the, the level of organizational integration actually results from a sort of secular process of, of, of violence and of monopolizing violence. That may be a direction I, I may take or may not. But you're, you're absolutely right. It has to do with that. On your second question on the time horizons, the way I've been thinking about that is um, I'm trying to get away from the following answer to why we lost in, you know, pick your battle, Iraq or Afghanistan. Usually, there's one component of the argument for why things went wrong. Say, so I'm, I'm reading the best book I know on, on Afghanistan is Theo Farrell's uh, Unwinnable. And Farrell's argument is that we were pretty good at killing Taliban and other assorted bad types. But one, the government was corrupt, and that undermined our ability to build a state. And then, two, we ran out of time. Right? Well, the run out of time only works if in the background is a big polarity between what I want and what they want. You see what I mean? So time is only a problem if there's a divergence of preferences. So, so in a sense, it's not time that's the issue. Because it's not clear to me that if you had stayed for 100 years, the folks who don't like you would either start to like you or put down weapons, so transformation or control. So I think I have to deal with the time issue. Um, I don't want to limit the project to sort of expeditionary counterinsurgency. I want to do sort of counterinsurgency in the same state. I think it's part of the deal. But I think the time arguments are, are usually sort of one step before the final story. And the final story involves a counterfactual, which is, OK, if you had 100 years, would it work? And I'm very skeptical of those stories. But I think it's a very, very good point. Thank you. My gosh. Also a loud voice. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I need it. You should still it. use it. It's good I, practice. I don't think I need it. <laughs> um, so. Uh, this was a, uh, an intriguing uh, paper, Nuno, and uh, you know, very interesting, but also, as you said up front, you know, uh, a little bit protean in terms of where you're going. I had to say I was a little bit confused 
exactly where you were going. It is a, a theory of political violence really just a theory about wars among peoples, which is a, a subset of wars, uh, or is it something broader? You're a big think Chicago guy, and I guess I naturally assumed you were coming in and going to tell me uh, about all, all use of force. But for political goals. All uses of violence for political purposes. So I'm not interested in sort of crime or, or gang violence. Well, all wars. All wars, yeah. yeah. Okay, so then, then, then I think I, I have a, uh, a problem. Um, I don't see um, Clausewitz uh, being applicable to all wars, to all sorts of uh, violence. Um, I think of Clausewitz as a theorist of war under anarchy, of war among states. Um, and I think these, especially war among peoples, are a lot of the, the cases that uh, you're sort of showing a little ankle about that you're interested in uh, are about wars, about ending anarchy, about building or rebuilding political order. You sort of let the cat out of the bag uh, with your response to, uh, to Ben's question. Um, and you've got Hobbes in here, and you've got Clausewitz, and you're sort of suggesting um, that you know, they're, they're somehow together an explanation uh, for uh, war. But I actually think that there are two different explanations about two different uh, sorts of wars. And I, I don't see, uh, or at least maybe it's just a failure of imagination on my part, um, how you're going to be able to use the same argument to explain both uh, the rebuilding of political order, which is ultimately about ending anarchy, which is what Hobbes is about, uh, versus uh, uh, wars under anarchy, which is what Clausewitz uh, is all about. Seems to me. Uh, it's, it's two uh, very different uh, sorts of things. Go, please. Yeah. So, to the first point, I am trying and to... And I noticed you didn't say it was an excellent question. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm too busy thinking. It's so good, I'm too busy thinking about it. I can't even think of that line. Um, the paper is meant to be about all forms of political violence. So I'm trying to think of all the way from you know, pick your lowest bound, terrorism to nuclear war. The reason I'm focusing on wars among the peoples is folks typically say the Clausewitzian model works for this higher part of the spectrum, you know, conventional war all the way to nuclear, but it doesn't really work for these wars among the peoples. And you're sort of following that up and saying, I actually don't think it works because these wars among the peoples are about building order, right? They're different from the others. I think they are the same in that you're trying to use violence in pursuit of a political goal, right? when you're doing that interstate, interstate, it's very rare that it's about the destruction of the other state. It's usually about the other state being transformed or controlled, right? so being acquiescing or supporting your goals. And I think it's the same thing among the peoples. Now, what I'm trying to do is, instead of seeing them as two types, seeing it as a continuum, right? by changing two variables. One, the size of the group needed to threaten me. And two, the integration of the adversary. So if you have highly integrated adversaries, 
So if you have threats in which the adversary is very integrated and you need a lot of people to be a threat, say conventional interstate war of the type we thought we would have with the Soviets in the folder, you know, when they came through the folder gap, that's one type of conflict. If you have threats that result from small groups of people in institutions that are very loosely integrated, that's a very different type of war. I'm trying to put them under, all under the same umbrella and say the ability to actually stop the violence and have the thing not collapse is lower in these wars among the people. But I, so I'm not persuaded that they're of a different nature. I think of them as being the result of different configurations of these two variables, the degree of integration and the size of the threatening group. Yeah, but the, the uh, most likely alternative explanation is that it has something to do with the nature of the war. I mean, the wars among the people, the wars of, uh, of state building are in a way, you know, sort of zero sum. You're, you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, imposing a hierarchical uh, structure, you know, a single hierarchical structure um, on a, uh, a, 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 a incident of uh, political contestation. So in the sense that, you know, it's not surprising that that would be uh, harder to, uh, to actually resolve. Conversely, in an interstate war, the wars under anarchy are about the limited use of military force. Clausewitz is the theorist of the limited use of force. That's the big thing that the US military doesn't understand, because they think about uh, Clausewitz's discussion of uh, the tendency of war to go to the absolute. But it's actually the opposite. You use military force not to change the anarchical system, but to uh, you know, advantage yourself and disadvantage somebody else within a system, you're not ultimately going to change. So limited war is eminently possible in wars of anarchy in a way it's not in uh, wars of uh, ending anarchy or state building. I, I don't think there's any reason why you can't have limited wars among the people, and you often have. So I used to grow up in Portugal next to Spain, where they were having a very limited war against ETA, who were the Basque separatists who perpetrated terrorist acts. Um, so I think the, so I, I read Clausewitz as the most fundamental point he makes is that if you don't politically limit the violence, it's going to escalate. And so you've got to do a lot of political work to keep it under control once the war starts. But he's talking about how you use violence to achieve political goals. And he's very concerned, as, as, as am I, that we understand that in the overwhelming majority of the cases, these political goals are constructive. It's not only in wars among the peoples. I don't read it that way. That is, most interstate wars are not just about killing people and then leaving. It's about creating a military situation that, leaves the, that leads the other side to sit at the negotiation table and give me whatever I want, Alsace, Lorraine, a certain king in the throne of Spain, whatever it is. It's not directly achieved through violence. The violence creates the preconditions for the negotiation to be uh, favorable to me. But I see them as integrated. But, so I see your comments overall as a meta point, as needing to do more work to actually justify that the framework is integrated, that it applies to both types of conflicts, rather than these are two categories. So that's where lots of the literature goes. 
is to say, Clausewitz is for this kind of war. You can't really use it here. So here we need to figure out a different way of uh, fighting these wars, say what we're doing in Afghanistan. And we're going to have this hearts and mind approach and build schools and greenhouses and start small businesses. And it's just a little problem that the Taliban keep bombing the greenhouses and the little schools. But, the, the, but we can't use that in the Clausewitzian framework because he's not talking about that. I think he's talking about that. So I'm, I need to do more work in that, in that direction. But that's the kind of, that's one of what I hope will be the contributions, right? So it's, it's, to, it's to address that. On this specific issue, we were talking earlier, you really do need to go back to Harrison Wagner's book about the integrated theory of violence at all levels. Whatever. Like, there is there's reference for you. Sean Branagh has a follow-up. Yeah, so thank you for coming. Um, this was uh, He's an advanced I am graduate an advanced student. graduate student. <laughs> um, so my question dovetails with Mike's on this building social order. And I think you might have answered it right in your last comment, but I want to still uh, uh, ask you this question. Your concept of control is a bit unclear to me. Um, how we're conceptualizing control, what its boundaries are, wh where the daylight is between control and transformation. And I think for me the hang-up is whether or not the political goal is building a, a political order. Uh, because you define control as, you say, manipulating the adversary so it acquiesces to one's political goals, or in other words, to turn it into a loyal, peaceful opposition. And I don't necessarily see those things as, as always in line with each other conceptually, right? Because if, if the political goal is some policy point, right, then you know, I, could, I could understand coming to conflict over that and, and one side is defeated and, 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 and they uh, uh, right, become this kind of loyal opposition within the system, right? But if the, if the policy goal, if the, if the point of conflict is what the state looks like, what the system itself is, right? I don't understand how, the, how there can be a loyal opposition to that, right? Because either you're accepting what the state is and what the state order is uh, or not, right? So, so that's all to say that... that yeah, I, I meant more, I guess, peace. The, I think there's a loyal, calm, or at least peaceful, something like that. Yeah, because I think it's more the peaceful that I'm, that I'm interested in. So loyal would become sort of require transformation, right? But what I mean is that even if they don't support your goals, they don't use violence to undermine them, right? So were all the Nazis converted to liberal democracy in May 45? Maybe a few, maybe a few weren't. But all of them thought it was not a good idea to pick up arms against the American, British, French, Soviet occupiers. So that's kind of what I mean, that even though you impose the political outcome on them, they are controlled. They, ref they refrain from using violence. I'm piggybacking on this J.C. Wiley, who's a strategic thinker I, I cite there, uh, who writes about control as the goal of war itself. So he tries to update Clausewitz by using control as the goal of war. You're, you're, the goal of the war is to control the, political the military space and therefore the political space and to deny the adversary that control. And I'm ex trying to extend that notion to the post-war period. So while you pass the microphone to Liam, I'm just going to say that this makes me think about, it's come up repeatedly, starting in your response to Hasmin's question, um, Monty Python's riff about showing the violence inherent in the system, right? That, that um, you know, this situation where the Nazis decide it's not worth taking up arms anymore probably doesn't meet your definition of peace, right? Because it's the 
threat of getting themselves killed. It's the constant threat that they're gonna, you're gonna do violence against them that they say, ah, it's not worth it anymore, I can't. It's, you know, you go back to the classic uh, um, political philosophy of anarchy, right? So not anarchy in the international relations sense, but in lack of government, because government is inherently coercive, right? There is no peace when there's government, government is coercive. So, 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 so that depends on your definition of peace. For example, can't, <coughs> Sorry? Your definition. No, so on ones, on ones I didn't mean it. I mean, yeah. it depends on which definition of peace you use. Uh, Kant has a definition of peace in his perpetual peace that he says, you know, peace is not just the absence of war. Because while war is possible, this is not the real state of peace. And peace means that people have sort of abrogated uh, resorting to war or have given up sort of war thinking. Uh, that's not where I'm at. So that control has no role. There's no, control is not a meaningful concept in that regard. You only need to control someone if they oppose you, and they would like to be able to change the, the, the setting if, if necessary through violence, but they think the calculation doesn't favor them if they use violence. So I, my definition of peace is, is not that thick. That is, I don't need, for me to call something peace, I don't need to have the absence of considerations about violence. I just need to have the absence of violence. Does that make sense? So. Um, we have peace between North and South Korea today. Right? There's no violence. Are there considerations of violence? Oh, yeah, particularly these days. But, not, but there's no violence, right? So it's not as thick as Kant's. So we shouldn't get into this conversation. I don't want to divert Sorry. from Liam. But I'm just going to say that why do you think there's peace within the United States today? Is it because of some kind of transformation that I'm never really seriously contemplating taking up arms? Or is it that there is this constant latent threat that government just is the monopoly of violence, that they are constantly oppressing me? Two, two answers. <laughs> I've actually thought about that. Two answers. One is, um, so I'm limited to political violence, right? So I'm not interested in gangs. and. that later. So go, yeah. But so I'm trying to theorize about political violence. And I think there's peace vis-a-vis -vis all sorts of unabomber and anarchist types and whatever, fascist types, because they think they'll be caught. And, the level, and, and those who don't you know, eventually use some violence, but the level is particularly low. And so I can call it peace. Gets me back to your definition. Back, gets me back to Hasmin's question, right? Why is it peace? We had the unabomber, right? So why is it, right? So I need to figure out a way to cut. I think it's a meaningful <coughs> distinction. Um, I need to figure out how to cut the distinction in a way that doesn't get me bogged down in numbers, like you know, the, uh, deaths per year or something like that. I don't want to do that. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. By the way, we can talk more at dinner. I have a second part. But. Hi. <laughs> okay, I'll be the first user of the microphone, I guess. Um, so I had a question. And, and Liam is an undergraduate. Student. Yes, what? I am unadvanced. <laughs> 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 That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, so I had a question. You talked about uh, how you were skeptical of the uh, advancement of technology of violence to threaten the state. You didn't think that it was new technologies that increased the ability of smaller groups to, to threaten a larger state. Could it not be uh, not the weapons themselves, but the um, like the dispersion, the technology of the dispersion of news? and how it so quickly can affect uh, economically a country. Yeah, something like that. So I like that more than the technology of, of, of violence. You know, when groups have been able to uh, challenge political structures with limited amounts of violence since forever. Right. Uh, I think we are particularly exposed 
both in the sense of what you say, uh, economic consequences, you know, 9-11 costs, right. hundreds of billions, that sort of thing, but also in uh, we, we give human life a particularly high value and so we don't like when people get killed and we have conceptions about innocent civilians uh, that make it unsustainable for the, you know, there's all these there's all this literature on terrorism, like why does the U.S. government fight wars about terrorism when more people die struck by lightning or, or, or by falling in the bathtub? Because falling in the bathtub is not a political problem, right? It doesn't cut to the heart of the, what the American government is supposed to do. The American government is not supposed to help you get out of the shower. But the American government is supposed to protect you from political adversaries. And so there's a certain vulnerability there which has to do with the way we see our political system, I think. But I like that more than the... the, the, the lots of people are like the, how the, the technology of violence evolves, I'm very skeptical of these sort of new wars, old wars distinctions in terms of technology. Thank you. Dan. Uh, first thing, I'm wondering if the integration variable can actually uh, lead to problems if you have increased integration. Because if you're attacking, you know, it could make for a more coherent enemy, actually. So I can see your logic, but I think there's a flip logic which might apply as well. Um, and also I'm wondering what the role of ideology might be. Um, perhaps it would sneak in under polarity, um, but that would certainly be something that would lead for another side to be very hard to make peace with if it's a deeply ideological conflict. And I'm thinking of an example for you that you might use, which is sort of an anti-example, <coughs> but post-Iraq. Uh, what did Bremer do? He acted to debathify and that included destruction of the integrated armed forces, but also an ideological component. They wanted to clean out the thing. It turned out to be completely wrong, and I would say you would turn out to be right uh, in terms of, of Iraq. But I think people are thinking about these variables, and, and, and that's an example you could use if you wanted to throw in some empirics. But you know, talk about the flip of integration and the role of ideology as being perhaps one of the things that make things polarizing. Because I think you could break out polarity. I think the way you talk about it tends to be divisibility, indivisibility of conflict. But I think there are probably other things that could go into polarizing. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let me start with the question of ideology at, at the end, uh, the second question you asked, um, <coughs> which, has to do, which was the second part of the answer I was going to give Eugene here, so it, it fits very well. Um, if I make this into a big book kind of thing, big as in long, not necessarily important, but if I make this into a long book kind of project, uh, one of the things I want to talk about is, so there's a lot of uh, re scholarship on the importance of democracy and the liberal democratic peace. Um, and I think ideology plays a very important role because I think this is what the liberal democratic peace is about, is you go to the Germans and you tell them, hey, you are not going to have Deutschland über alles, but you're going to have color TV and uh, you know cars and air conditioning and all that, and so you're going to get along with us. So I think ideology <laughs> plays a very important role in transformation as a way of, of, of keeping the peace and therefore decreasing the burden on control and destruction. I think it plays a very important role. Um, I'm sure this will be an argument that will make me many friends in, in the policy establishment. On the, on the question of integration, you're absolutely right. So I didn't try to say that a, a less integrated adversary is harder to defeat. In fact, I think that while you're fighting, a more integrated adversary is probably more capacious and, and harder to defeat. The question is, it's easier to control if the leadership decides it's time to give up. 
whereas a, a less integrated adversary is harder to control, even if the leadership decides to give up. So who is it in Afghanistan? Is there any, is there any one human being that has the power to sign a peace deal with us that gives us what we want and then enforce it on their side? I don't know. I don't think so. You see what I mean? So I don't think there's anyone on the other side that can give us what we want politically and then do the dirty work of control themselves in their society. So it, it's, it's easier to defeat because they're not the, the Wehrmacht, but they're harder to then control. So I, I need to make that more clear. Thank you. So um, I'm not going to ask like questions based on Clausewitz or IR really. I think analytically, I mean, I'm confused a bit out the levels of analysis here. Like you have a ton of concepts and I'm not sure what's an independent variable, what's a mechanism, what's an indicator. So, and I think Dan's question gave me a good segue into this. Like, okay, I understand that integration conditional on other things might be important for the outcome. But then you need a third variable, which would be like maybe strength of the, because probability of defeat should be important, right? But I think more generally, I mean, I, it's not clear to me why you have some <coughs> variables are not others. So I would think that, uh, I know, fragmentation could be important, right? Uh, or uh, uh, Can I ask how that differs from the organizational integration? It could be or it could not, right? So integration here, it's like, uh, is there a cohesion? That fragmentation could be like heterogeneity or, or things like rough terrain, right? Why, why isn't rough terrain? Perennial. Like the perennial, like Jim Scott can, uh, or does a type of counter insurgency matter? Why isn't like that a variable or not? I, mean, I, I think I'm, I could think like an exhaustive list of variables that are not here and I'm not sure exactly why. And just uh, very, very, like I think that the two variables you have, like the size and the integration, they're kind of different types of variables and they're related in a way. So I would think that the more integration, the more integrated, um, 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 you know, uh, an adversary is, the, the less, uh, the bigger that the size of the minimum group will be. So I think those two are related. And, and the other thing with that is that it seems like integration is like an, a, a, a characteristic of an adversary and size of the minimum group seems to be an endogenous feature of the war that would change as the war progresses. So anything, but generally I think the theoretical framework, I mean, I, I need more motivation to understand why you pick these variables and not others. And what, what is an indicator? What's an explanatory variable? Good points. The, 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 so there are 5,500 other variables that people use in this literature to explain victory or defeat in counterinsurgency. Let's just stick to counterinsurgency. We could pick terrorism or civil war. Each of these has, you know, a big basket of variables. Those are variables that then go into a theoretical machine that's about evaluating whether the strategy or the tactics are right or wrong and produce outcomes in the end. I'm trying to say, be that as it may, so I'm not trying to say there are no strategic problems or no tactical problems. There may be a gazillion of them. I'm trying to say there's another level of problem that hasn't been studied, perhaps as well, which is problems that emerge from the socio-political configuration of the conflict. And those are the two variables I picked as, as independent variables. And I, I'll go to the problems you have with those. But th that would be to say, at this level, there's a different sort of problem going on that may mean that for the strong way to formulate the argument is for some conditions of the variables I'm interested, it doesn't matter what you do in strategy and tactics, it's not going to work out. The weaker version of the argument is to say it's least li less likely to work out. Right? Um, 
So I'm going to try to abstain from those variables. I think the, on the second part you had, on the whether the minimum size of the group and the level of integration are related, whether there are different types of variables, I don't see them as related. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I need to think harder about it. I didn't see them as related. So you can have an adversary that's very integrated or very disintegrated independently from how many people I need to threaten you. So if I have an adversary that's very integrated, right, and I need just 10, 10 people to threaten you, I, I can have that situation. I can have a situation in which I need a lot of people to threaten you. Right? There are different sorts of threats. So I thought they were independent. Very integrated means that you can like establish a credible fact or agreement. Right. So therefore, any other threat would be not, not credible because of any, any other like small group within, would be within the adversary would be deterred. Yeah. Yeah, but <coughs> it's one possible speculation. Maybe I wasn't understanding. No, no, that, that that makes sense. The problem is if you're right. I'm so you're saying in certain conditions, in certain specifications of the variables I have, when the parameters have certain values then you're fine. And I agree with that. I'm trying to say that when the level of integration is low and the size of the group is low, you get this sort of perpetual violence problem. That's all there is. I mean, maybe it's a banal point. But it's just saying, for certain area of the parameter space, as game theorists would put it, right? For certain area of the parameter space, when these two parameters are low and low, you're stuck in a permanent violence situation. And I'm, I'm trying to, the contribution is to highlight how this is also a problem independent of tactics and strategies. So, let me go on just for a second more. The military complains a lot about what they call the tactification of strategy. When I talk to folks in the military at the, sort of the, the, at the higher training schools, what they mean is, nobody has any idea which strategy will work, so we're going to discuss tactics until we're all blue in the face. Right? We're going to pretend that tactics is all that matters because we have no clue on strategy. And I'm trying to sort of complain about the stratification of politics, which is you're thinking about strategy, you're thinking about tactics, but you're not thinking about the political conditions. And in certain political conditions, you just can't do it. Doesn't mean it's wrong. So I'm not trying to say, much to perhaps the chagrin of those who'd like to be less interventionist, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't use violence just because you can't end the war. It may be that the right, for certain circumstances, the right way to do it is to mow the grass like the Israelis do. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm agnostic on that for the time being. But I'm trying to point out the, 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 the structure of the situation. So um, <clears throat> we are very short on time, but Father Bill has graciously requested. So we all it follows, it follows a little on your final point there. It connects to what you say are policy, policy implications. Policy <coughs> implications. Uh, you said certain circumstances, not going to win. Peaceful outcomes, not possible. OK, relate that to the present circumstance of the United States. That seems like an initial point of policy implication. What would you recommend to contemporary policymakers about their circumstances? They're still stuck in Afghanistan, still stuck in some sense in Iraq? I think we're stuck. So I think unless and until we find a way of making our political system more resilient to terrorist attacks, or our social system more impervious, which is impossible because you have to stop free flow of people, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to have to deal with these threats. And the way to deal with them is to continue to use violence. Now, maybe you can do that with just drones and don't need boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. 
but I don't see a way out of using violence in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, a bunch of other places where we're doing it. Uh, you can try to scale it down, and you can try to minimize the use of American ground forces. I don't think you can get away from, from using violence. That's why drones are so um, appetizing for contemporary policymakers is because they see them as being able to do this fine-tuned thing. I actually think that in practice, the current administration and the previous administration, so if you want to read a great book on this, read Charlie Savage's Power Wars. It's a thousand pages. I actually heard it as an audiobook because it's too heavy to, it's like a doorstop. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm old, man, and I can't read these books. Which is a, an inside story of the Obama administration's policy against terrorism. And sorry, I'm droning on. I came away with two takeaway points. The first takeaway point is the lawyers are everywhere. It's like, you know, the room where they discuss policy is like two policymakers and 18 lawyers. Number two, so it's not like you make the policy and then you check with the lawyer, like the lawyer makes the policy. Number two, and relatedly, in the government is just, I think, considered the fact to the fact that we're going to continue to do this. Right. So I think they've bought on to the theory before, like the, if you want this sort of the Hegelian thing about how the owl of Minerva sets off at dusk, they figure this out. We're going to be mowing the grass for a long time. That's why drones are so good. And maybe what I can do in terms of policy recommendations is to say, look, just concede that and pull out the troops. You don't need the ground forces because you're going to be stuck with these ground forces or no ground forces. It's a, it's a chimera trying to change the system. Thank you very much, everyone. Yeah. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.